Um, If you have a Bible, open it, like I said, to John chapter 2 this morning. We're going to be reading out of uh, verses 13 to the end of the chapter. Um, If anyone isn't there yet, say wait. Okay, good. I feel better now. Uh, And we'll put it up on the screen for you. You guys can read it as we we read out. This is John chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons... Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. So as we get into uh, this passage this morning, before we really dig into the depth of it, uh, one thing I wanted to do was actually take a step back and look at kind of the bigger picture, a little bit of the context and and kind of see what maybe John is doing in his gospel. Uh, Because it's important for us, uh, this is not a standalone uh, story as so often we'll treat some of these things that we find uh, in the gospel accounts. But even more than that, uh, this is, John is doing something here that he's going to do several more times as we walk through his gospel. And that is, what John likes to do is so often present us with a account of Christ, a picture, an understanding of, of who Jesus is and what he's about. And then he likes to follow that up with another account of Christ that seems to be completely contrasting of what we just read about. With him, And so if you remember last week, we talked about, actually Pastor Ed preached on uh, the wedding at Cana, and, and he talked about what that was and what that meant, and uh, how it was Christ's first miracle, and he did this uh, so that people would believe in him. That how in that we see that God cares about the ordinary things in our lives, the things that uh, we tend to and are prone to maybe think are not important enough for God to really care about. And the thing is, is that God does care about those. What we also saw is, is that one of the things Jesus is pointing to is the joy that we all get from following him and that it is the greatest joy uh, that we could possibly imagine encountering because after all, as Pastor Ed said, what Jesus does in our life is better than anything else we could imagine. And so it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense for us as we keep reading that John, without really skipping a beat, goes directly into this account of Christ walking into the temple, clearing the temple, going crazy, throwing people out, making a whip of cords. And it's like, what in the world is going on? John's telling us something. John's saying, look, it's almost like he knows our 
how we are inclined to take one picture of Jesus and run to the extreme with that and say, well, this is who Jesus is and the wedding of Cana and all that stuff and joy and uh, miracles and, and this, is, this is the full picture of who God is. And John says, well, hold on a second. There's also another part to this. And so he offers this up and he contrasts and he says, now you're starting to get a better picture of who Christ is, who God is and what he's up to and what he wants to do in your life. And we need to keep that in mind because, again, like I said, John's going to keep doing this as we walk through his gospel over the next several months, but even more so for today because this is a particular story that, quite frankly, is just kind of hard for us to grapple with. We're actually inclined, when we look at this story by itself, we're really inclined to read it wrong and to actually think it's about some things that maybe it's not so much about. Like one of the ways that I think we're inclined to read this poorly and get it kind of wrong is we can see Jesus clearing the temple as a vindication for us to be angry in our life. That any time that we get upset about something, we can point to and say, well, Jesus got upset about stuff, so I'm allowed to get upset about stuff. And the thing is, is that we have to understand that this is not a okay for you to get upset and start screaming and yelling and throwing things when your favorite sports team is losing. I had, I mean, this, is, this has been hard for me. I had to stop quoting John when I was throwing stuff at the TV and my wife said, you know, you're not supposed to be doing those sorts of things. Um, this is not what that story is about. Uh, the other thing that we can see this as, and oftentimes this has been used for, is as instruction, just basic instruction on business within the church and how business within the church should be or just shouldn't at all be conducted. And we like to look at this and say, well, Jesus threw out the money changers, and he said, don't make my father's house a house of trade, so there you go, don't do that. And actually, as we look at this in the context of looking at it with the wedding in Cana, probably what we start to see is tr the trade that was going on was actually the least of Christ's worries. It's what that pointed to and the reaction that was given to him by the Jews and the rulers of the temple at that time. And finally, maybe one of the ways that we're inclined to read this and deal with it is, quite frankly, this passage just makes us uncomfortable. To see Jesus do this, to see Jesus be this way, we don't like it. And so we like to maybe chalk it up to an out-of-character moment. Jesus just had a bad day. And we look at it and we look at this, man here and we say, who are you and what have you done with my Jesus? This isn't the guy I'm following. This isn't the guy I read about. This isn't the guy that was just at the wedding in Canaan. And so we say, you know what? Forget about this. Don't worry about this. Don't worry about that. It's, it's, it's an aberration. This isn't who Christ is. And so we're not going to pay a whole lot of heed to it either. The thing is, is that in that we have to say, Jesus, we believe is God. And so you can't really say God has a bad day, can you? Uh, you can't walk around in your life and live your life according to the idea that mm, sometimes God has bad days. He throws a temper tantrum like I'm prone to do. And so you just got to live with it when he's, when he's having an off day. No, that's not at all what is going on here. And that's not at all how we should read this. That actually we need to know that Jesus had a limited time. He had limited ministry. He only had a certain number of interactions, conversations, miracles to do with the disciples to teach them and us about who he is and what he's about. And so everything Christ did, everything God does is intentional. It's meant for something. It's meant to teach us. It's meant to encourage us. It's meant to correct us. And so we need to take this story in the same way. 
We need to try to, as much as possible, put ourselves in the disciples' shoes and say, we're trying to get to know this guy like they were. What's he showing us? What's he telling us here? And so if we take this today, the clearing of the temple, with last week what we talked about with the wedding in Cana, what we see is God is concerned with the ordinary parts of our life. And that is an amazing thing, and that is good news. But he's also concerned with what we see and what we treat as sacred. And he's so concerned with it, he's willing to go through the trouble here in the temple to show us how big of a deal it is. We're told in John's gospel that it's the week of Passover and Jesus and his disciples, they they go up to Jerusalem. And it's kind of hard to understand exactly what all is going on, but especially because uh, scholars aren't totally certain how many people lived in Jerusalem at the time. Uh, But during the week of Passover, maybe the best way and probably a pretty conservative guess would be we can imagine that the city of Jerusalem itself swelled to five times its normal population. Five times the amount of people that were there. So if there are 20,000 people living in Jerusalem, there are 100,000 people in Jerusalem during this time. Huge number of people. Maybe one of the best ways to think about it is to think about the seat that you're sitting in right now, and there are five other people trying to sit in that seat at the same time. It's crowded. If you think being stuck in 205 traffic at rush hour is bad, this was really bad. They would actually, for months before Passover, go and fix roads and bridges heading to Jerusalem just so it could handle the amount of people that would be traveling up to Jerusalem during Passover week huge amount of people. And so it's in this scene that Jesus and his disciples, they are walking up to Jerusalem. They're shoulder to shoulder with people. It's frustrating. It's hot. It's sweaty. They're bumping into people. People are bumping into them. Maybe the reason why we think Jesus loses his cool by the time he gets to the temple. But again, that's not what's going on here. And so they get into the temple courts and we're told he in, enters into the temple and he enters into the courts. And there we, what we know is if you don't know about how the temple was set up, that's okay because I'm going to explain it really quickly to you. He walks in and where he would have walked in was the court of the Gentiles. And this would have been the biggest area of the temple. The temple complex was huge, uh, but it was made up of several different courts. And basically each court determined who could keep going on. And as you went on inside the temple, less and less people could go forward. And so the first court you entered was the court of the Gentiles. And basically this was where everybody could get to. Everybody could come to worship God, the God of Israel. Everybody had access there. And, but it was there that access stopped for the Gentiles. As you went a little bit further, there was a court for women. This was, primary, this was Jewish women. And then you went a little bit further. There's a court of the Jews. This is where Jewish men could go. And as you went further and further in, finally you got to what they called the Holy of Holies. And that is where God's presence was. And there was only one person that can go there. And it was the high priest. Once a year, he would go in and he he would offer a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the entire nation of Israel. And so you can, so we back it up to where Jesus walks in. They walk into the biggest area, the only place everybody can go, and it is pure chaos. We're told that Christ finds people selling oxen, sheep, pigeons, money changers sitting there. It is loud. It is busy. It is chaotic. The historian Josephus actually says that in one particular year, during the week of Passover, they sold 255,000 lambs to be sacrificed. 
255,000, and that's just the lambs, not to mention all the oxen and pigeons and everything else that was being sold there. Can you imagine how crazy this was? Tim Keller, in trying to describe this, he says, think about how nuts our trading floors at the New York Stock Exchange are when they're trading stuff, right? Can you picture that? Have you seen that before? And then add livestock to that. (laughs) Crazy, crazy loud, crazy busy, crazy smelly. I mean, just sheer activity as far as the eye could see. I was thinking about this and I thought, you know what? I think if this was a church today, I would walk into that, and I think most of us would too, and we would see that. We would see all the people. We would see all of that going on, and we would say, man, this place, this church, these people, they're doing something right. They have unlocked the key to bringing people into the presence of God. They've got this thing figured out. This would be a church that we would go to the conferences that they held about how to do church. Because we want that. We would be so overwhelmed and in awe of the sheer amount of activity, the motion, the people, just the busyness. We'd be like, man, this place is awesome. They are rocking and rolling, and we want some of that too. And I have to think that as they walked in and as they walked into that first court, the disciples are thinking, what a great time to be here. How awesome is this? And not only is it great to be at the temple at Passover, we're here with the guy. And they are overwhelmed and they are loving what they are seeing. And they're talking to each other about the spectacle that's going on. And they turn around and they're like, Jesus isn't this great and he's nowhere to be found. And instead, in some far-off reaches of that huge court, they hear a commotion. And if you can imagine how loud this was, the fact that Christ does something that can be seen and heard by other people, that they would come running to find out what's going on, tells you something. It's like commotion versus commotion. That at the same time, the disciples and we probably in their shoes are looking around and we're saying, this feels right. This is awesome. This is the way it should be. Jesus is saying, there is something not right about this. What's going on here is not what's supposed to be going on. And I'm standing there and I'm thinking, I'm shocked because God, isn't this what you wanted? This is what the temple is about. It's to bring people to you. It's it's to show your glory. And the more people, right, the better it is. And the busier it is, the better it is, right? And it's Jesus' words here that are vital, that, that help us to start to understand why it is he takes offense to this, why it is he gets so up in arms about it, why he says this isn't the way it's actually supposed to be. He says, as he's making this whip of cords and he's driving people out, we're, we're told that he, he looks at those who sold pigeons. I don't know why he singled out the pigeon sellers. But he said, take these things away. He didn't like pigeons. Don't make my father's house a house of trade. Don't make my father's house a house of trade. And again, this is where we get into, well, maybe this is Christ saying, just business in the church. Don't sell stuff. Don't do that. But it actually helps if we understand what the temple was there for, what the temple did, why the temple was. See, the temple was actually a stopgap measure. The temple was filling a void that had been created, a void that had been created all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. 
That there before Genesis 3, before sin enters the world, there Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. And what we're told about the Garden of Eden is it is what we are intended for. It's what we were created for. It is a place where they live in constant, uninterrupted relationship with God. That's what you and I were created for. To live in a place and to live in a way where our relationship with God is the thing. That there is nothing that gets in between us and him. That his thoughts are our thoughts. That his will is our will. That we want to do what pleases him. And that's what they had in Eden. What they also had in Eden was a sanctuary. A sanctuary that quite literally, as the word sanctuary means, protected them. That they were held fast and they were protected in the love of God. And that as long as they were willing to cling to that and understand that his ways are best, they would always be protected. They would be protected from death. They would be protected from heartache. They would be protected from wrongs being done for them and hurts being in their life. And the ways that they were broken actually defining who they are. That it would be his love that is everything to them and is all about them. And so when that was lost, God says, okay, we were, you were intended to live in relationship with me all the time, everywhere. That No matter where you went, there I was. And that's somehow been severed by sin. And so what God does is, is he f- fills the void. He creates first the tabernacle and then the temple. And the temple is a place where all people can come to God. So we've kind of, we've kind of backtracked. So instead of having a place where God is everywhere as we go, we have one place that we all go to meet God. But still God provides a way for us to know him, for us to live in relationship to him. That is the point of the temple. And Christ walks in and he says, that purpose is not being accomplished. It should be somber to us here that if we're truthful and we probably are like the disciples, overwhelmed and in awe and so impressed by the temple and what was going on, that God doesn't see things the way that we see things. That where we see physical activity, he might actually see spiritual sluggishness. Where we see growth in status, not just his but ours, he sees lack of real transformation. And that's what God's about. That's what God is after. That's what God wants for you and me. See, he is saying there is something wrong with the world. It is called sin. You all have it. You all deal with it. The only way for it to be undone, the only way for it to be dealt with is through me. And so what we see from Christ here, what we learn about him, is that access to God is sacred. The thing for Christ that is sacred, that is held up, that cannot be messed with and should not be try, we should not be trying to add to, is having access to God because that is where real transformation happens. That's where real change takes place. It's not in our busyness. It's not in our activities. It's not in the motion that we can produce because we are really good at being busy, aren't we? We find ways to keep ourselves busy. We find things to do for job security. We are great at being active. 
We're so good at it, in fact, that if that's what God wanted, if that's what it required, if that's what access to God, how we got it, then there's no need for Christ. Jesus walks in, though, and he sees the temple, and he sees the Jews that are in charge of the temple doing this and living out this way, and he says, you guys have got this all backwards. We need to make a change. The temple is meant to be one of the ways to understand the temple and talk about the temple. And then on this side of the cross, we often talk about Christ, is that the temple was meant to be, is an intersection. It's the intersection of where heaven and earth meet. It is the intersection of where God and his people can come together and where they can live in the protection of God and that they can see real transformation taking place because God is dealing with the sin that is in their life. I was thinking about this idea of an intersection and, and, and what an intersection does. I thought way too much about intersections this week and how they work. <laughs> My life is so boring. Um, but the thing about intersections is that we, I mean, they're, they're pretty amazing things in that we are given a choice at every intersection, right? That we can either keep going forward and that what brought us here will keep us going and, and that we will keep moving in the same direction or we can decide that a change is needed and we need to move in a new direction. And usually what that change requires is a change not just in what we decide to do but how we even do it. And the intersection between heaven and earth meant that as we walk into this place where those two are colliding, we walk in and we say, what we did out there doesn't work. We need what's in here. I need to order my life in a different way. I need something new. I need something different. And Christ walks in and he sees what's going on in the temple, this place for people to access God. And he says, what's going on out there is still going on in here. You guys haven't changed your direction. You're still holding on to, you're you're, you're still relying on the very same thing you were doing out there. Now the thing is, is that the longer we're around church and we're around people in the church, we get really, we get a lot better at talking like we're relying on something new and doing something new, but actually still doing the old thing. And Christ says, let's cut through all that. A change needs to be made. He actually is one of the things he's doing here that the Jews don't get at the moment, but we're told that his disciples, they kind of see what's happening later on. John is nice enough to tell us this. It's that Christ is getting rid of the sacrificial system. He's changing up this whole thing. He says, no longer is access to God required or based on what you can bring into God's house, now it's about what God is bringing into your house. What's God, what God is bringing into the court, temple courts of your life, of your heart, of what God is doing there. That's what it's all based about now. So stop trying to bring your stuff. Stop trying to do your thing. And more than anything, stop acting like how you live out there works for how you live in here. I think there are two major issues that Christ takes with what is going on there, and, and you can boil them down into these. And that the first is that trade is controllable. Trade and what I get through it has nothing to do with God. There are a few things that require me to be able to trade with people, to be able to acquire what I want. And it's basically what I've got, who's got what I want, and what I'm willing to do, or how good I am at getting what I want from them. It's all about me. And Christ walks in and he says, 
Something that was intended to be a means for people to access God is beginning in a place where it's all about still what you can do and what you bring to the table. Because that's not right. And it's got to change. The other thing I think Christ takes so much offense to here is that as we talked about with the Gentiles, this is the court of the Gentiles. This is the one place that the Gentiles at this time have access to the living God, the one place that they can worship. And what it had been changed into? A trading floor. Can you imagine if people pumped in a bunch of wild animals in here right now and started bidding with one another and everything? Would you be able to pray, to worship? Some of us might feel more at home. I don't know, but... It would be distracting, right? And so here were these Jews in charge of the temple that had been given the responsibility of making sure as God's word in the Old Testament says in so many different places, making sure that every person of every tribe of every nation will have access to him because that's where true life is. That's where real transformation takes place. And those who had been entrusted with this most important task we're essentially saying, hey, if we set this up in the court of the Gentiles, does it get in our way of worshiping God? No, I don't think so. Okay, well, let's do it then. A people that had no voice, a people that had no standing, and yet God had said mattered to him and need to be thought of were being ignored and thought less of. Access to God is sacred in any time we hinder that, not just in our own lives, but other people's lives. Christ takes issue with that. As much as this passage shows us about Jesus, and we, and we think, as we read it, so often I've looked at this and I've thought, okay, what is Jesus about here? What is Jesus doing? But Scripture, we're always supposed to hold it up and look in the mirror and say, okay, what is Jesus about, and then what am I about? And this passage is amazing. As we see in the reactions, we're told not only do we need to figure out what God finds sacred, but we need to know what is it that we hold as sacred in our lives as well. And he does that in a couple particular ways. Now, I just want to walk through those uh, really quickly with you this morning. I say quickly, but we know how long I preach. Um, the first is this. We see here in these first verses uh, from 13 to 17 that what is sacred is featured. And what I mean by that is what is featured is front and center. That it is the thing in our life that we want people to walk away knowing about us. Or it's the thing in our church that we want people to walk away and say, this is a church about that. It is the thing that we make sure when people come in, we point their attention to. If you've ever been over to somebody's house, you know what is featured in their home. And so you know what is sacred to them in their home. So often we think in our lives that whatever's front and center, like right there, is what is featured. And yet the truth is, if you just think about going to somebody's house, that's not always the case. Because what is most important to us, we don't always put right in our entryway, do we? Sometimes it's tucked in the dark recesses of our home. But as we're being shown around someone's home, it's the thing that they make sure we see before they leave, right? And this can be so many different things. But you know what's sacred when they walk in and they say, 
Did you notice the 70-inch TV on the wall? That's pretty awesome. We know it's sacred to them when they say, you know, and I got a really good deal on it because, you know, to me, you know, stewardship, you know, it's, it's a big deal. It's the thing that as people are walking through our lives, as they're learning more about us, that we make sure they know about. We make sure it's brought up in conversation. We make sure we point out to them and say, did you see that? Do you know about that? Let me tell you about that. Hey, hey, come in here. Let me show you this real quick. These things that we feature in our life, as we do that, it tips us off to this is sacred. And the question is, why is it sacred? Is it sacred in our life for its own purpose, or is it sacred in our life for a purpose Christ has for it, that it points to him in some way? We have lots of ways of featuring these things, but what we feature is most important, and what we feature sends a message. We may not think we're saying much to people by what we put up, or what we put out, but we are saying volumes to them. And the biggest issue with what we feature in our life is when it does, in fact, get in the way of our worship of God, our access to God, when it distracts us. Uh, you may have heard of, there's a religious movement um, back a few hundred years ago. It started in Britain, came over to the, uh, the United States, uh, called the Puritan Movement. Has anybody heard of this? Yeah? Okay, say woohoo. You know, um, the Puritan Movement. It, it actually came out of the Anglican Church, and if you, uh, it, it was actually a, a, a reaction against the Anglican Church for a lot of things that they saw in the Anglican Church following the Church of England's, which is the Anglican Church, the Church of England split from the Catholic Church. A lot of things that they thought they were holding on to. And, uh, and so one of the things uh, that they did, if you ever go to a historically Anglican church and you walk into their church buildings, uh, either here in America or over in Britain, they are some of the most beautiful things you'll ever see in your life. Uh, the artwork in them, the stained glass, all, all this different stuff, just uh, immaculate, amazing, so beautiful. Uh, the Puritans believed that the Anglican church was filling, its, filling the church with too much that was of man and not enough of what was God. They felt like and they were concerned that what was being featured in the church was not access to God. It was something else. And so their response to this, there were a number of different responses, but the response to this was in most of their churches, if you walk into what is a historically Puritan church, you will find it is pretty plain. They stripped out all of, all of the carvings. They stripped out all the stained glass. You'd walk in and basically it looks like actually kind of like our church because we actually do have some roots in the Puritan movement. That the Puritans believe so much that what needs to be featured, what people need to know about the church, what is the thing that will change people, is not how pretty and beautiful our church can be, because those things were starting to actually creep in, and they were becoming what was sacred, that around them were what was sacred, not what was beyond them. And so they said, the thing that needs to be focused on is worship, and worship in prayer, worship through song, and primarily worship through the spoken word of God on Sunday mornings. And so basically, when you'd walk into a Puritan church, there'd be a cross up there, and that'd be it. It'd be pretty plain. It's like Pastor Ed's dream. Um, if you don't know Ed, Ed likes things plain. Um, the Puritans believed that what is sacred is featured, and so they said, let's feature God and nothing else. Isaiah 56, where God is talking through the prophet, 
about his house, the temple, where he's worshiped. He says, my house will be a house of prayer. That prayer, conversation with me, a relationship with me, that is what people are to walk away from knowing is featured and sacred because that is where true life is found. I love the response uh, of the Jews. Well, I don't know if I love it. I just find it humorous that there in verses 18 through 22, they, Jesus is doing this and it's causing a commotion. And so they come running up to Jesus and they're like, what signs do you have to do this? What authority can you show us that you get to do this stuff? A knee-jerk reaction to they see this thing going on and it's harming something that is important to them. And so they walk up to Christ and say, you better have a good explanation for what you're doing. You better have a good reason for what's going on here. If you think about it, actually, nothing that Christ had done was actually affecting what the temple was there for. There's nothing getting in the way of people worshiping. There's nothing getting in the way of people bringing their sacrifices to the temple where they need to. Jesus was actually creating space so that people that were supposed to be able to do it could finally do it. And yet the Jews were upset about it. And so what that actually tells us about them is they were upset about something else. As much as they walked up and they proclaim and they show themselves as protecting the temple and they protecting access to God, that's not at all what they were about. And it shows us that we need to understand that what is sacred is protected in our lives. It is the thing that when people touch that nerve, we have a knee-jerk reaction to. It is the thing that when people threaten it, we stand up and we say, oh no, you don't touch that. So often we think that when people don't respect our sacred places or our sacred things, that it actually it shows us something about who they are, when in reality, it shows us more about who we are and what we value. I mean, think about it. It is not their sacred thing. So why would we expect them to treat it as such? But when they don't, and how we react shows us, good or bad, what it is we hold to, what it is we look to, what it is that we feel is important in our life. The point of it is, is that the sacred in our life cannot stay hidden for long. We think that if we learn the right words, we cover it up, we have a smile, we react to things in a certain way, that we'll be able to kind of keep it hidden, that maybe the most important thing isn't the most important thing to us. But before long, someone's going to do something, and before we know it, we are reacting in a way that we can't imagine. We're running up to them saying, what signs do you have to do this? I was trying to think of an illustration about this, of how to like show how this works. And um, the best thing I could come up with was a personal story from my life. And so to kind of understand the story, you, you need to know one important key piece of information. And that is that uh, my dad's name is Brian. Okay. So just hang on to that, Brian. And think Brian. Uh, we were at a, uh, a, a camp, a family camp in the summer that our conference would do. And so uh, there in that evening service, uh, about 400 people, of people from all over our, our conference of churches. 
And uh, this was a pretty sacred place. This was a time that people really cherished and it had been like traditions and families. And we're in this chapel and this chapel has got like the big pipe organ on the wall. And they've got, I don't know if you've ever seen, like sometimes people do like banners and they put like scripture verses on it and stuff. And I'm pretty sure like one of them said like holiness unto the Lord, which tells you you're in a sacred place that people really care about. Uh, it was still a time when, uh, even though it was 90 degrees in the evening, guys would wear, you know, ties and suits to the service. Women would wear dresses, uh, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and so uh, that evening, my mom was actually doing a solo special piece of music in front of the, the entire group. And uh, she gets up there. And uh, with the mic in her hand, which I don't know, she, she didn't think the mic was on. I don't know why you speak into the mic when you don't think it's on. But uh, not thinking the mic's on, she says, hey, Tim, can you turn me on? And then she said, no, sorry, only Brian can do that. <laughs> there in front of everybody. She said it. Um, and right then, I, you see, my mom doesn't embarrass easily. She embarrassed with this one. I embarrass easily. And all the youth group eyes just turned and looked at me. And I thought, oh, you did not just say that. Uh, we bring that up to her every now and then. Uh, it's, it, it's fun to recount. Um, the great thing was watching my dad, who was, it was back in the day when the guy who was going to speak, which he had a part to do that night, uh, they set up on the stage. It was great watching my dad react to that while uh, everybody was laughing and uh, carrying on. But um, it would be so easy for us. They're in a place and a time that we see as sacred to start in our own minds drawing conclusions about her and what she finds as sacred and how she doesn't, she doesn't honor these things that are so important. When really probably the only conclusion that we can draw from that is my mom doesn't have a mental filter and should be never given a live microphone. <laughs> it's just the worst idea. You do not know fear till my mom runs up to grab a mic uh, at a gathering. Um, but how we react to these things, they actually tell us more about ourselves than they tell us about the person doing it. The question that we have to constantly ask in ourselves, that Christ is asking us to, to mull over, to work through in our lives is, what do you protect? What is it that you are always the quickest, quickest to defend? And that shows you what's most important to you. That shows you what is sacred in your life. The challenge is for us as well is what about when the thing that you're protecting actually shows itself or even has the possibility of affecting someone else's access to God? It's one thing to protect it when it hurts or gets in the way of our worship of God. It's another thing when it's hurting someone else. Do we actually defend other people's access to God? Do we defend them? Those who can't speak for themselves, those who are not in the room, those who do not have a voice, are we willing to stand up and say, yeah, but I can see how someone, this would hurt their relationship with God. See, Isaiah 56 doesn't just say, my house will be a house of prayer. It says, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. 
All people will come together. All people will know me. All people will have access to me. No one will be separated. No one will be thought better of or over the top. That as you are figuring this thing out, you are to take everyone into account. And if it even has the slightest possibility of interfering with someone coming to know me, it has to be dealt with. Christ is constantly asking us, are we willing to clear our lives and even our churches of anything that keeps us or others from worshiping him? Talking about what is sacred and what is protected, it seems like John just throws in these last few verses about trust and and Jesus not trusting people and knowing what's in their hearts. And so he doesn't entrust himself to them. And and you kind of look at it and you're like, okay, I don't really get what you're doing here, John. I don't get why. This doesn't seem to go with Christ clearing the temple. And it's because he's making a point to us that once we know what it is we feature in our lives, and once we know what it is we are quick to protect, we then know what we trust. Because what is sacred is always trusted. It's easy in our lives to say that one thing is trusted while trusting something completely different. But why Christ is so passionate about this and why he is making this point and why he is teaching us about it here and now is because one thing that we are slow to understand is that the thing that we trust is the thing that arranges our life. The Jews of this day, they were trusting something other than God. They were trusting money. They were trusting trade. They were trusting their own status. And so it became the thing they featured, and it became the thing they protected. The greatest lie we can believe is that we get to choose how we arrange the living room of our heart. That we get to choose where things go and what order they're in and and whether or not they're featured or not. No, the thing is, is the thing that we trust thing that we have our hope in, that is what arranges our lives. And so Christ says, you have two options. You can trust yourself. You can trust yourself, but trust me, I know what's in you and it's not good. You can trust things made by people that are like you, but you know yourself and you know the places in your life that things are not good. And so can you imagine how good those things are? But you can trust that stuff. And you can arrange your life that way. Or you can trust me. So know this, if you trust me, I'm about transformation. I'm about doing something new. I'm about doing something different. And so what that also means is I'm going to have to rearrange some things. There are going to be some things that I'm going to see and I'm going to say, this isn't helping your worship. This is actually getting in the way of other people's worship and it's got to go. And Christ says, what are you willing to trust? Are you willing to trust yourself or are you willing to trust the God who created you? The God who, before the beginning of time, before he created anything, knew what was going to happen, knew we were going to sin, knew that he was going to have to send his son, knew that he was going to have to die and he was going to have to be raised again so that we could have access to God like we were intended to. And out of his love, he still chose to do it. Are we going to trust the God who arranged 
all of eternity around bringing us back into relationship with him to rearrange our lives? Or are we going to trust something else? What are you trusting in today? Who do you trust to do this? Because I can tell you right now, there's only one who loves you enough, knows you enough, and is willing to arrange your life in such a way that while it might be hard, it is always necessary because in him, in Christ, is where we find relationship with God and that is where the life that we need so desperately is found and it's only there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, it is so easy, so easy in our lives that as we are trusting you, as, as we are living in you, Father, for, for things to be elevated that should not be, uh, things to creep in and to become significant to us, sacred to us, that were only given in the first place to build you up, to point to you. Lord, I pray that we would be open to your Holy Spirit to just search our hearts out, to, to enter into the deepest recesses of who we are. And Lord, if there is anything there that takes away from your worship, that, that is sacred or protected in our life, that is causing us to trust in something other than you, Lord, would we have the faith and would we be willing to allow you that when you say this has got to go, we agree and we allow you to take it away? Father, as we come before you, would our worship be pure? Would our hearts be totally set on you? Because in you and only in you is where we find the light of life. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I think one of the reasons why John puts this uh, account of Jesus here uh, early on in his ministry is one of the things he's telling us is we have things in our lives that we're trusting instead of Christ, and we need to clear them out if we're going to continue on this journey of what all he has left for us in the rest of John's gospel. And that's an important thing to know, an important thing to realize. But also, though, is if you look at the other Gospels, uh, there's reason to believe that maybe this wasn't the only time that Jesus did this in the temple, that he actually maybe did it another time. And how that helps me as somebody that's been walking with Christ for a little while is that this isn't just a one-time thing. This is something that Christ continually comes back to and he says, are there things that are taking away from you living with me or others living with me, and do we need to remove those? And for me to say, okay, let's do it. He constantly comes back around and he says, let's make sure that what is sacred is the only thing that can transform you, and that's me. We keep that centered in our life, and that is how we live in the light of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week. If you want to stick around for the baptism, we encourage you to do so. But if you need to leave, we understand. Have a great week.